So today's lesson text breaks from our Lenten season and comes from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Jesus is here speaking. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust consume, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust consumes, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts may be an honor and a glory to you. And Lord, you know I have bombed this sermon three times. Please give me the wisdom to handle it. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes, that's true. So meaning and wisdom. I get stuck on that one because it's very easy to nail a pastor with a 501 graduate question in 101 class. I tend to get, what's the purpose in life? I don't balk at that because I haven't thought about it very much. I balk at it because I've thought about it so much, I can't put it into layman terms. But it is a problem that many people can see today. Let's take young people, millennials like myself. It's not any secret in the world that we have a sense that they don't have a real anchor. And living in New Hampshire, 40% of the population has no religious, creedal grounding. It's an age of nothing. And in fact, many philosophers are starting to call this the age of nihilism where we just void out specific philosophical categories as nothing. Gone is what I like to call my big sister's generation of relativism, where, well, meaning is whatever you make it. Nowadays, kids, there's no meaning. And we see that in many of the conflicts and struggles that our society is facing. They're bored, so they turn to drugs. There's no reason to pay attention, so they turn off. And as I was driving through the country, I spent a lot of time thinking about this, but I've been thinking about it and trying to preach it for a year and a half. One of the things I feel pastorally is our familiar answers are not working. We as a church have learned to use only one side of the word of God, but it's a double-edged sword. There's a point where we need to turn it around and use the other side as well. So on all these things, I am not debating, I'm not naysaying our familiar answers, our favorite way of looking at it. But what I'm saying at is there is a double side. Most of our answers speak to how humanity is special and God loves us personally. But just as strong in the Bible is the theme that we look out at this magnificent universe and everything God created and ask as the psalmist, what is a man that you think of him? What's my purpose? And see, the reason we're struggling to speak to that question is a lot of our things are on the other side. They're focused on us. There's therapeutic religion from the 1980s where the pastor was like a psychiatrist. We have lots of backup platitudes built into our Christian minds when someone struggles with life. Well, you know, don't feel about it too much. Buck up, buddy. And there are churches and books and secular versions of positive thinking that are all over the place. 
Now, I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel. Those things all have a time and place. Right before the section of Ecclesiastes we read is the famous, there's a time to reap, a time to sow, a time to build, a time to tear down. As I see these things and think about them and try to process them, I think our problem today is we live in a world of chance and luck. But the problem of yesterday and the problem that most of our theologies and our Sunday school lessons were built to fix was a problem of fate. See, when we're struggling with fate, there's an outside force upon us. It's where liberation is the best thing. Because when you're trapped in an unjust system, in an unjust economy, liberation is a really good thing. And as we built democracies, we gave individuals rights, we liberated people from unfair systems, and the liberation side of theology really fit. That was because people felt locked in. But today, people are not locked in in any way, shape, or form. The only constant is change, as they say. Society is adrift on morals. It's even adrift on a sense of place. People are moving across national borders. People move around the country. Accents such as the southern accent are dying out. It's all melding. And people are adrift on beliefs. What do I believe? What's correct to believe? Are my beliefs evolving? Are they locked? And the thing I see, and I see it in people that I love, is people have become so adrift, the biggest question they have nowadays is, who am I? Even our relationship with very concrete things like our physical body is no longer taken as concrete. It's something that's questioned and might not be right. So if that's the paradigm that the church faces, we need new approaches. Because the fact of the matter is we have a lot of unused and a lot of avoided material in the Bible. We need the bravery to go in and get it. Especially if we're going to ask the questions, if we're going to answer the questions that are coming at us today, which is what is purpose, what is life, what's something I can hold on to. Now, our old approach was tended to be to salvage things. That's not a bad approach. Jesus salvages the whole human race with the cross, but it can be very worldly and carnal. We can push attachments to things in this life. So someone asks, what's the meaning of life? And we can say family. And we can, as a church, push them to get attached to family. But what about the children for whom family is the source of the change, the source of the pain, and the dynamics that don't move? We end up preaching a gospel where God band-aids the life and the world. For God so fixed the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's a hard sell to a world that knows its issues. We ascribe to... I guess the seculars or people who are non-believers, an arrogance that's not correct. They are not titanic builders who build a big giant ship and don't bother to put in any lifeboats. If anything, those are our great-grandparents. They're the ones who passed the faith to us. These people are humble. They know this world has issues and they know they are powerless to face it, which is why they're giving up meaning. But where they make the false step is, 
They've been taught this God band-aids the world so much that eventually they start to lay the world's evils upon God's own lap. Well, if God is good, why does he let this happen? How do you step into that? And how do I put it in one-on-one terms? We are faced now with a situation where we must put forward God's providence, his ordering of all things against chance and luck. This is something I have been working on for a year now because I have a bad habit of throwing everything up to luck, and that's just bad theology. You see, God's providence is just the basic idea that God orders everything, and he orders it all for his glory. I was taught as a child that what's the meaning of life is that humanity glorifies God, and that's a lot less churchy than it sounds. That is saying that everything that happens to us, good or bad, ultimately proves God's glory. And when we get up into heaven and look at it, we'll be like, wow, that was really smart. It's Job, one of those books we don't want to have much to do in our lives. We don't want to be Job. We don't come to church because we want to relate to God like Job did. But it's Job's question. Are we going to only accept good? Bad comes from God's hand, too. So I have a thesis, and it's an interesting one. I think by focusing only on the positive in this world, in this life, and what we see in people who are asking questions, we have a slight unwillingness to shine light into very darkness. We have created a system theologically where there has to be some dim light already in the room for us to see Christ in it. But if we believe God's providence, that he is in the good and he is in the bad, there is no darkness in God, as scripture says, but that doesn't mean God doesn't do good work in darkness. I believe that Jesus is teaching today, do not store up treasure here. It will be eaten by the rust and the moth. Works just as good in the reverse. When the rust and the moth eat our treasures in this life, it is God through his omnipotent grace teaching us that our treasures should not be here. God is the one who is creating the dissatisfaction with a life apart from him. Because God has a kingdom, that's the gospel. He has a new world he wants to create. He's done with this one. He has a new life that's ours through Christ. He has a purpose for all of us, but it is tied to him. That's why all the hell debates are sinking sands. The Bible makes it very clear that because our purpose is in God, the opposite is true. Outside of God, there is no purpose. It's not a mystery then that a world is looking out, is not going for the God option, and finding itself completely nihilistic. This would require a big change in approach. And some of the things I haven't worked out yet. But I've seen it. I've seen it as I've gone up and down the country this year. And uh, one that pointed it out to me was when I was at the Smithsonian. Now, please, let's just shelf the Genesis debate here. Please, no. I went to the anthropology section. And they had Astrolopithecus and all the different skulls up there of the different hominids. And there was a dad who started yelling at his daughter for looking at it. He was yelling at her because he said, no, 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 that's, that's wrong. Humans are special. And he gave off a Genesis quote. 
not inherently wrong, but we can't just go to Genesis 1, and that we're made in God's image, and ignore this Ecclesiastes that we read, which God shows people they are just animals. In getting mad at the daughter and not working it out, by making it such a duality, it, it, it just didn't work. Because see, what I think what the Father was doing and what a lot of our theology does is when we go for God created Adam, we try to make humanity special on its own. Well, that Adam, that humanity that was special on its own, what makes it fall? It eats the tree seeking to be like God. What does the second Adam of our New Testament teach us, though? What does Paul put in his epistle? We have a new Adam, and what did we go over in the catechism today? That new Adam is not an image of God. That new Adam, Christ, is 100% God and 100% humanity in unity. Very God of true God. This is a yin and yang thing. Again, I repeat, it's a double-sided sword. I'm not tossing out the old stuff we normally use. We're looking at the other. We have the special creation of humanity, but we also have the vastness and looking in eternity. And I think if we believe in a God who orders all things for his glory, that that wall of hominid skulls and fossils and 45 million year old animals teaches us that Apart from this relationship of God, then that's really all it is, bones and dust. Ah, but that sounds grim. That's the one that I, that's the problem I have and why I always blow this sermon. This sounds like, well, hey, Paul, you're saying there's really no meaning in anything. We should just get baptized and jump off a cliff like they used to do. No. What I'm trying to say is, we as Christians know the eternal life is now. It's something that is lived in this world because when we are baptized, we die to that old life. We have a habit in the church of trying to make ourselves all unrepentant sinners. We try to undo the gospel to give us some parody there. But no, you are dead in Christ, you are raised in Christ. You are living a completely different world than the rest of the world does. And that eternal life is lived here. Not in full, but in part. And that's why the old approach is right. See, by Christ in us, every single thing we as Christians do rings for eternity. We see God in the good things that happen in our lives, and God is in the bad things that happen in our lives. Nothing is taken from his hand. Nothing is for granted. Everything that we do, our family, our loves, our marriages, are all in God, in Christ, eternal, when we have that unity with him. This just requires the firmness of faith to say, and to not deny... As the Bible puts it, that the world without Christ is perishing. I don't see why that is such the problem in Christian churches that it is today. Because the reason people are asking me, Paul, how do I find purpose, is because the people outside the church know that. They are looking at the walls of hominids. They are being told life is just an accident. And they are learning a Bible truth being witnessed to them. But what they cannot learn is they cannot learn without being told by us that there is a new life in Christ and that we all have a purpose. Now, I don't know here. The only, the only thing I can think of here is I have to go to Moby Dick. 
when Ahab finally crawls up on the white whale and stabs at it. And the author says, if his heart were a cannon, he would have shot it upon it. This sense of meaningless, this nihilism is for me, my white whale. This is my generation and it's the thing I'm worried about. And I think on this one, Jesus is leading the way. We've gotten mopey about it, but he's taking it on. And as we get to Easter, you can see his steps going up the cross. And yes, everyone was shaking their heads saying, what a waste. A waste of what? A fleeting mortal life? No, each step Christ took was a step that echoed in eternity. Jesus looks to the cruel forces of the world and lets them pile it on. But each step, each nail breaks them. And as he's lifted up, chance, fate, luck, etc., what do they do to a dead man? He breaks the power of them all. It's good to have emotion, but I can't wrap this one with quite the pretty bow I'd love to. I can't tell you God's specific plan for you. You got to work that one out with the boss on your own. But the one thing I can tell you is God has made it clear in his Bible. He has made it clear in his church. He has made it clear through the workings of his Holy Spirit in 2,000 years of saints. And he's made it clear in the lives of many of you and lives of many people you love that God has a plan for all of us. And every Christian will tell you that that includes a union with him. The Christian church is called to overcome the world. It finds itself weak today because it doesn't look to overcome. It looks to submit to the way things are and to work in the system as it sees fit. But faith is not walking by sight. And I think we as the church need to admit our failures. Mine, yours, everybody's. We are called to equip saints to push forward this kingdom of Christ, to set to naught those things that are by things that don't even exist yet. We're called to reject partnership with the powers of this world and the prince of the air who rules over them. But as I look out at people who are my age, I'm worried because instead of bold tigers who have been risen up to be set for this challenge, Christians are being turned out who are not much more than pussycats. They're taught to do within their means. They're taught to seek their purpose here and now in what they do for a living or what they learn. And it's a very head down, shut up way of living. It's a hope that the universe just happens to work it all out. Well, my friends, the good news is when it comes to what is my purpose in life, the gospel, God cares not what the universe thinks about it. We serve a God who sees a grave and calls Lazarus out. We have a Holy Spirit and power to save those that are perishing. Dearly beloved, Christ is returning and his reward is in his hands. We are vindicated by his life, death, and resurrection. Many of the mountains have already been moved. We just need the boldness, the humility to say, Apart from God, we cannot move the mountains. And this is that double-edged sword that pierces the heart. It's the preaching that needs to go forward. Because just as Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And that word stands eternal. 
as does the opposite. Anything you ask in my name, you shall have it. And that's God's eternal word. That's his very will. Let's obey his word. So what is the purpose in life? The purpose in life is to glorify God. He is our creator and he is in ultimate control of it. And as the creator, it is in relationship to him that all things find their meaning. He found our situation apart from him so desperate, so meaningless, that he decided to rectify the situation that he would send his only begotten son. He would come down and take on the very flesh of humanity because his creation had lost its purpose that far. And he would take it all the way up to the cross. And he would ride that bad boy right into Easter. So the Lord could say, call upon my name and you will be saved. Come to me and I will restore your purpose. Because at the end of the day, meaninglessness is what's made meaningless. We are humans. We are creators of value. We build mighty civilizations, families, homes, arts, joys, smiles, laughter. God loved those things so much that he sent his only begotten son. Let us pray.